morning, everybody. I uh, hope you had a good restful Saturday, a good weekend, and I'm just grateful to yeah, be together again here this morning. Uh, as we begin this morning, I, I want to ask you to do something um, that might seem a little awkward, but I want you to think about the last argument, last disagreement, the last fight that you had uh, with someone that you love. And I want you to think about how you viewed that person in that moment. So the last argument, the last fight, last disagreement that you had, who was that person just in your own head? And, and how did you view them in that moment? You know, I, I asked this question because I, I, in the last couple of years, part of the work that I've been doing personally is, is having to become aware and acknowledge that when I'm in an argument or even in the aftermath of it, that I have the propensity to reduce the person on the other side. I have the propensity to reduce them down in my mind to my least favorite aspects about them. And I'll hold them there during that argument and I'll even hold them there in the aftermath. And I hold them in this caricature rather than seeing this person as being made in the image of God. And I've had to recognize that it's something that I do to my wife, unfortunately. It's something I do to my, my, my boys at times when I'm in tension with them. It's, it's something that I, that I do and I've, I've had a practice of it and God's called me on it and brought it to my attention. And I've had to acknowledge that it's unhealthy. I've had to acknowledge that it's sinful. Again, because I'm, I'm taking that person, I'm reducing them to a caricature of something I don't like about them. It might even be something sinful, but I'm reducing them down to not allow myself to see them with the dignity that God would call me to. And I know none of you struggle with that. I know that's just probably something that I deal with. Um, but as I interact in the world, I've, I recognize and acknowledge that I see it in our, our world culture, though, that that's something that is not only okay, but even in some regards championed. And if you play that out long enough and consistent enough, uh, what it leads to is a culture where we lose sight of the actual issue at hand and we focus on the people on the other side instead. And what we do is we actually dehumanize them and we begin to write people off uh, so much so that there's even this term kind of deemed about our culture right now as, as a delete culture. That if I don't, I don't like you because you don't agree with me in something, I, instead of focusing on the issue, I just focus on you and I can just hit delete. I can unfriend you. I can block you. I can do all those things. And it's just a delete culture. And, and last week we talked about that, you know, right now we're living in a time too that's been categorized as, as an escape culture. And we talked about last week that um, escaping though is not what an advocate is called to, that the gospel calls us as advocates to actually run to the tension, to actually stay in the tension, to stay present with people, to stay present with the issue instead of escaping. And we also are going to then look at this week about how does the gospel and the message of the gospel and the call of Christ on our lives uh, how does it call us, again, to counteract the delete culture? How does it call us instead to, to live differently? And so we're going to continue our journey this morning through the book of Philemon, uh, learning again about the gospel and, and the message of Christ and his call in our life through looking at Paul's posture and Paul's model for us as he writes this letter uh, to Philemon. And I want to, I want to start by, by reading uh, a couple of verses here, verse 15 and 16. Paul writes this to Philemon and he says, uh, for this, perhaps, is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever. No longer as a slave, but more than a slave, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. Now, just to, to recall and, and exercise our memories here a little bit, uh, Paul is writing this letter at the same time that he wrote to the church in Colossae. Uh, he's writing to Philemon, who uh, is a wealthy believer who actually hosts one of the churches in Colossae in his own home. 
uh, like most wealthy men and patriarchs in, in the, of that day, families of that day, uh, they owned slaves, they owned bond servants. And Onesimus was one of those bond servants, one of those slaves, and ran away because uh, he did something. We, we don't know exactly what it was. He wronged him, but he ran away. And uh, by God's providence and God's sovereignty, uh, Onesimus uh, meets Paul in Rome uh, while Paul is in prison. We don't know if Onesimus himself was in prison or if he heard about Paul there and he went to visit him. Uh, but Paul then shares the gospel and Onesimus becomes a follower of Christ as well. And Paul learns that he was part of uh, Philemon's home and part of the community there in Colossae. And so Paul's writing to uh, Philemon to say, tell him, I, I want you to receive Onesimus back. Paul is actually sending Onesimus to deliver letters back in Colossae. And he, so he, he gives the heads up to Philemon and says, I'm sending Onesimus back. And I want you to receive him back, not as a slave, not as a bondservant, but I want you to receive him back as part of your family. I want you to receive him back as a brother in Christ. So this is a very challenging ask, a very high ask. It's countercultural. Again, Philemon would have had every right to uh, punish Onesimus. He'd have every right maybe even to, to have him uh, imprisoned. Uh, he would have had a lot of, every right under the Roman law to do a whole lot of things to continue injustice. And Paul writes to cut that off and he runs to the tension. He sends this letter and he tells Philemon, I want you because of the gospel, because of Christ, because of who you are, to receive Onesimus back as a social equal. And so we've seen over the last few weeks that part of Paul's posture, part of Paul's ability to do this and in writing this and calling Philemon to such a high call and challenge was that he took a posture of prayer. He depended on Christ in, in, in prayer. He depended on Christ in a number of ways, God's sovereignty at work in the midst of this moment. We saw that he ran to the tension. He's running into the middle of it to call again for justice and for reconciliation. And this week, what we're going to look at is that instead of Paul functioning again in line with the culture and in line with what our culture would do today, we see that Paul functions here as an advocate by responding with dignity. And so what we're going to look at today is that, is that, that truth, that fact, that posture, that kingdom advocates respond with dignity. And we must do that if we are going to be partnering with God, walking with Christ, being an advocate for justice and reconciliation in our culture. And so I want to read now verses 17 to 22 to look more specifically at how Paul modeled that and how we're called to that also as disciples of Jesus. So Paul writes, he says, so if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it to say nothing of your owing me even your own self. Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I write to you, knowing that you will do even more than I say. At the same time, prepare a guest room for me, for I'm hoping that through your prayers, I will be graciously given to you. Right here at the beginning of verse 17, we see Paul use this word partner. He says, if so, he said, so if you consider me your partner, Receive him, receive Onesimus as you would receive me, as you would receive me, Paul. Now, this word partner, it's the Greek word koinonia, and it means either partner or it means the sharing of, or it means a mutual participation in something. And in particular, he's saying, if you consider me your partner, if you consider that we share life in Christ, if you consider that we are mutual participants in the life and in the body of Christ and in the ministry that God has called and entrusted us to as a church, 
then I want you to, to act different than the culture. And I want you to receive Onesimus back as you would receive me. Again, receive him back as a social equal. And this is important because this isn't, only the, this isn't the first time that Paul speaks of his partnership with Philemon. We see in verse 1 at the very opening of his letter, Paul writes and he says, I'm Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, and Timothy, my brother. I'm writing this letter to Philemon, our beloved fellow worker. So Paul opens his very letter by addressing Philemon as a fellow worker. Again, speaking of this, this partnership, this koinonia, this, this mutual participation in the ministry and the work of the gospel. Paul writes in verse six, and he says, I pray that the sharing of your faith, it's the same word, that the koinonia of faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. Again, appealing, reminding Philemon of this, this partnership that they have. In verse 13 and 14, Paul writes and he says, I would have been glad to keep Onesimus with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. But I prefer to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but be from your own accord. What we see here is that in order for kingdom advocates to respond with dignity, part of the underlying posture of that is that advocates respond with humility rather than with superiority. What we've seen in in each of those verses that I just read there, and Paul speaking about this koinonia, this fellowship, this partnership, this mutual participation, is that Paul doesn't come writing and demanding and commanding. Paul doesn't even speak of himself as this this primary apostle, as the, the great church planter. He doesn't speak to himself with this superior posture, but he comes with humility, even to the point of saying, Philemon, I consider you my partner. And if you would consider me your partner in return, then here's how we're called to move forward with justice. Here's how we're called to move forward with reconciliation. See, what what Paul's speaking to here and what Paul's talking about is that the implications of the gospel, yes, they're extremely personal, but they're actually never private. Tim Mackey says that actually in his Philemon video in in the Bible project. We We were watching it in our MC. So the implications of the gospel, they're, they're extremely personal, but they're never private. Because of the, the partnership, because of the mutual sharing, because of the participation that you and I have together, that Paul and Philemon had, and that Paul and Philemon and Onesimus had together in the gospel, Paul is saying this, this koinonia, it's not just like some theoretical term. It's not just something that is like a, a, a theological platitude that we believe in our head. No, no. He's saying it, it's an actual truth. It's an actual positional reality. That if we believe that we've been saved and redeemed by Christ, and if we believe that we are part of Christ, that we are in Christ, that we are part of his body, then this partnership, this koinonia, this mutual sharing of life together, it's not, again, something we just think about, but it's something that we're called to, and it's something we're called to live out in relationship with one another. And it's a relationship that doesn't allow us to act like the culture, where if there's someone on an opposing side of us, we get to just delete We get to just boil them down to the character of the worst thing we think they are in our mind, and we can begin to distance ourselves and be done. Paul says, no, 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 no. The gospel, yes, it's extremely personal in its implication of our salvation, but it's not private. It's communal in the outworking of it, which calls us, therefore, to interact with one another as advocates for humility, both in our relationship with one another and then in the way that we represent Christ and this koinonia, this fellowship in the world. Paul goes on in verse 18 and 19, and he continues to write and show us this posture of humility. He says, if he has wronged you at all 
or owes you anything, charge it to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it to say nothing of your owing me, even your own self. What's interesting is that Philemon is the only letter or the only book that Paul writes that doesn't explicitly talk about Jesus's death and resurrection. In this whole reading of of these 25 chapters, we will never hear Paul specifically write about the death and the resurrection of Christ like he does in every single one of his other letters. And, And scholars believe the reason why is because Paul actually didn't have to because of this statement right here. Paul doesn't have to write about it because what Paul is doing is he is acting out with his own life, again, modeling the humility of an advocate, what the, what the, the death and the resurrection of Christ looks like. Paul is saying here, if Onesimus has wronged you, don't charge him. Instead, charge me. What we see Paul doing here is, is standing in the gap, stepping in the place to pay for the wrong that has been done by Onesimus to Philemon and saying to Philemon, in humility, I want to step in and I want to bear the burden of another. I want to step in and and be the place that reconciliation can take place and happen. You know, it's easy for us to read this, but we have to think about that for a second and realize how humble a position that is, how sacrificial a position that is. It's Paul modeling what he wrote about in 2 Corinthians 5.19 where he says that that is in God, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. This is Paul living that out, that, that in this moment, Christ is being, or excuse me, Paul is being like Christ. He's placing himself in that humble, sacrificial position of Christ, and he's allowing himself to be the place where Philemon and Onesimus can be reconciled back together because of his sacrificial position, his willingness to pay a debt. See, what Paul is reminding and calling Philemon to remember, and what he's called Onesimus, I believe, to remember as well, is that we're all equals before God, and we're all in need of the grace of the cross. And when we remember that, it allows us to to take a posture again of humility when we're entering in as advocates into places where there's tension, into arguments, into places of injustice, into places where we wanna see transformation. We talked last week that our call to do that, to run to the tension, isn't just because we need to stick the stake in the ground and do it for our own sake, or it's not to appease our own guilt, no. It's for the sake of reconciliation, as God calls it. It's it's for the sake of biblical justice, as God defines it. And And for to live for that, it means, we need to enter in with this, this posture of humility. Ultimately, that's going to lead us to the second posture that I want to talk about today, that advocates, in terms of responding with dignity, advocates respond with dignity by relating to all parties through the gospel. The way that we do that is by actually responding by showing compassion and by showing love, by extending forgiveness. See, Paul, in this letter, And in this story, the bigger context, we know that Paul doesn't show favoritism. He doesn't show favoritism to Onesimus, nor does he show favoritism to Philemon. If Onesimus has become a believer in Christ, and we know that he has, it's because when he came to Paul and he sought Paul out, we know that he had to confess to Paul the fact that he stole, the fact that he wronged, the fact that he ran away. We know that because Paul is saying, I'm sending him back though he's wronged you, I'm sending him back. So call Paul's sin, sin in Onesimus' life, calls him to repentance and calls him to the grace of the gospel. 
And we see in the letter on this side to Philemon directly that Paul here too is calling sin, sin. He's saying to Philemon, if you were to accept him back as a slave, that's injustice. If you were to accept him back according just to cultural norms, that would be sinful. That would be wrong. But you're called to something higher. You're called, again, to, to invite him back and bring him into your family as a social equal, not, not as someone less than you, but as a social equal in dignity because of the gospel, because of who he is in Christ. And so we see here that Paul's goal, again, it's, it's the justice of the gospel. It's the reconciliation of these two men in Christ. And so he acknowledges the sin on both sides, but he doesn't just treat Philemon, nor does he treat Onesimus as less than because of their sin. He doesn't treat them according to the caricature of their sin. And he doesn't hold that against them. Instead, what he does is he treats them both with compassion. He treats them both equally with love, and he treats them both with equal dignity because of the working of the gospel in these relationships. So in order for us to actually do that, one of the other things that our, that our culture is not really good about is calling sin, sin. <laughs> our culture, because we don't call sin, sin, it actually, I think, helps to per- perpetuate that propensity to stigmatize people or to caricature people according to something that we're not willing to call sin, but that we're willing to call, I don't like, or I don't agree with, or I don't want to engage with. And instead, what that does is actually dehumanizes people, and it takes it so that we have to think, we forget about the actual issue, the thing at hand, and we, we heap these labels and we keep these judgments upon people and we deal with people without dealing with the sin. Did, did you track with me there? And instead of calling the thing that's sin, the thing that's misaligned or offensive to God and his heart and the gospel, instead of doing that, because our culture doesn't want to talk about sin or talk that we have these long things. Instead, we just go that person, that person and their issue and their stuff. See, one of the things that we have to do in order to be advocates, and we see that Paul does here is that we have to call injustice sin. We need to call it out. We need to address it gracefully and truthfully. But then here's the follow-up question. How do we view or treat the person causing the injustice? We need to call racism sin because it is. We need to call it out. We need to address it as that. But how do we then view or treat the person causing or acting in a racist manner? We need to call injustice what it is. We need to call any type of sin what it is. But the gospel also calls us, though, to still view that person with dignity as an image bearer of God and to be able to separate those two things so that the gospel can come to bear on the issue in the matter of sin to bring transformation in the life of the person. See, if we can't separate the two, then what we do is we minimize them down and we lose sight of the hope of the gospel to bring justice and reconciliation. I've had to acknowledge that in my own uh, areas, in my own heart, as I told you in the beginning, At times when I get in an argument with someone and I begin to boil them down to my least favorite part of them and I characterize them that way and I focus on that and I lose sight of the issue, what I'm actually doing is losing sight of the hope of the power of the gospel to bring peace, to bring healing, to bring reconciliation in that issue. And that's why God, that's the reason why God over the last number of years has called me on it and said, when you get in an argument with your wife, I don't like the way that you think about her. When you get frustrated with your boys, Dominic, I don't like the way that you actually think about them sometimes. When you get an argument with XYZ, anybody, there's a disagreement. I don't like the way, son, that you think about them because you don't view them as my son and daughter anymore. You dehumanize them and you boil them down to a caricature of the thing that you don't like and you focus there. And God's called me on that and said, no, you got to be able to separate, see the people in dignity and then address the sin. 
And when we fail to do that, we cannot step in as true advocates. See, church, I've been reminded that we know and we serve a God who desires to reconcile a people to himself who haven't been just or who haven't been righteous. And I know sometimes we can get into the bad habit of categorizing sins and thinking of some sins as worse than the other. But one of the things that we learn actually in looking at the Sermon on the Mount is that, that Jesus doesn't do that. Jesus didn't do that at all. I want to read for you Matthew 5, uh, 21 to 22. Jesus said that you've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. See, what what Jesus is saying here is that when anyone, any human, holds up their heart to the standard of God, to the standard of the gospel, to the standard of the cross, we all fall drastically short. Do we not? That's Paul's message in Romans 3, 23 and 24, that all have sinned and all of us fall short of the glory of God. But the free gift of God is salvation through Jesus Christ, our Lord. It's again what Paul writes in Romans 5, 8. He says, but God shows his love for us that while we were sinners, God died for us. See, that, that's the beauty of the gospel. That's the beauty of the reconciliation that God has given us and called us to in Christ, that, that God reconciles to himself even the worst of sinners. God sees us fully for who we are. He sees both his image in us, which allows us to, him to see us with dignity, but he also sees the sin in us, which is opposed to him, and yet he still draws us and calls us to himself because the image within us, the dignity that he's placed within each person trumps and and overrides the the manner of sin. His love overrides that. His grace overrides that. Not saying he's ignoring the sin, no. But the only way to actually deal with the sin is to see it for what it is, but also to see people truly for who they are as well. And I love and I'm humbled by the fact that Paul does that here in this letter for us and shows us that if you and I are, are going to be advocates truly in the process of seeking justice and reconciliation in our world, we need to take that same posture. If we're going to live as advocates, we must come in with an awareness of our own story, our own sin, our own bias, and remember the gospel call to pursue true reconciliation with one another. I want to talk just practically, specifically about a couple barriers that that I've I've been reading about, that I've seen, and that that have come up in, in conversations and the way I think that this plays out sometimes for us, the ways that we, even within the body of Christ, we, as brothers and sisters in Christ, can, can, can fail to do this with one another as it applies to racial reconciliation. I think one of the barriers is that we need to talk about what's called white fragility, and we need to talk about fatigue. Now, remember, when we were talking about we need to call sin, sin, and, and see people who are in dignity. White supremacy, sin. We got to call it that. White fragility, though, on the other hand, is not sin. White fragility would be a weakness and a lack of exercising muscles and being uncomfortable in the process of having conversations around race. Now, we got to be able to call it that and see that because weakness is, is not necessarily sin. Lack of exercising muscles, that's not necessarily sin. It's, it's, it's being out of practice, yes. Now, might there be things underneath white fragility? And white fragility being, again, any time a conversation about race or injustice and, and these type of things come up, uh, m- people who, who are white, myself included, growing up in a predominantly white context, 
we, we get uncomfortable with it because we're not used to having to talk about it. And so we might get angry. We might get defensive. We might we just want to run and flee. Now, are those, with those underlying things, could, that, could sin come out in the midst of that? Yes. But when I've talked to brothers and sisters who are white, who have no familiarity, no concept of this, it's not sin to, to have the fragility in the midst of this. It's, it's a lack of exercise. It's a lack of, of being put in the place to have the conversation. And, and when I've been talking with some people in, within our own community, there are times where I'm so amazed and I'm so humbled by those who have stepped in to be the bridge. Those who have stepped in and said, I, I've never had to think about this stuff. I grew up in XYZ place. I've never been exposed to this, but I want to jump in. I want to engage. And they come with this, this humility to say, I've never used these muscles before but I want to use them. I feel God drawing me and calling me to use them. That, we need to applaud that. And I think sometimes people of color can look and go, oh, those, those, those white people, they don't, they don't want to engage. They're, they don't want to do this or that. They're, they're out of practice. But can we see them and say, those are my brothers and sisters in Christ. And, and being fragile is, is, is not sin. It, it's out of practice. So where's the grace in that to see the issues separately? And to bring grace, the church should be a place where we actually can bring our fragility in any area and, and, and be trained in it, to, to have a space of grace and, and of truth, to exercise our muscles, to learn how to have these hard conversations. But again, unfortunately, I think historically often the church is not that. And so on the other side of fragility is also fatigue. Fatigue saying that the fact that we're still talking about this some people are tired of it. Or the fact I've been engaging in this journey for so long and I'm not seeing the change that I want to see. We're not seeing the justice. We're not seeing, uh, yeah, just the transformation that we believe is in line with, with God's justice, God's heart, God's reconciliation. And so there's a tiredness in that. And again, some people would look and they'd judge the tiredness. But what we have to be able to do is look and go, no, they're, they're tired because it is a long, it is a hard, it is an arduous journey. I love this morning, actually, in our, our pre-gathering time that the team always gets together and we pray together and we talk. And Kelly shared this morning how just he had received from God just a word of encouragement as he was soaping uh, through Ephesians where God says that I've prepared you for, for good works and, and in advance that you should do. And then Paul writes in, in, in Colossians says that this good work which I've done in you, uh, I, I'm going to continue it. That, that he who has begun this good work is faithful to bring it to completion. And, and, and Kelly just shared, like, that was such an encouraging word that he needed that, that yes, this work of, of justice, this work of reconciliation, it's hard and it's tiring, but, but it was the encouragement he needed. And, and that's what the body of Christ should be. We, we need to first learn how to practice this advocacy posture of, of replacing dignity back on people, even in the midst of our arguments, even in the midst of our disagreements, even in the midst of, of tensions. You know, a couple a couple years ago that I started wrestling with this before we did our, our series a year, year and a half ago on, on the ministry of reconciliation. I had other pastors. I had people tell me if you actually talk about this in your church in a church that hasn't talked about it before, you might have some people that leave. And we have, <laughs> they said, you might have some people that, that get tired of hearing about this. And at times maybe there are. See, the church has to be a place where we can see the reality of the injustice and the brokenness. And we have to be willing to run towards it and embrace that tension, which we talked about last week, which was really hard. But then we got to be able to stay in that place together and place on one another the dignity and the value, the worth of being image bearers of God while we address the issues of sin and injustice within, within the same context. Are you tracking with me this morning? But again, church, in order to do this, we have to allow the story of the gospel to continue to come and bear on my own story. 
Because when I do that, that's when I remember how God places dignity and humanity on me in Christ every single day and every single moment. How he, yes, he deals with my sin, but he treats me as a son. And we need to learn how to do that for one another. I was reading a, a, a book and they were talking about how this tension can play out. And they were, they were recounting the story of during the time of the Holocaust, there was a Dutch woman named Corrie Ten Boom. Some of you guys know that name. And Corrie Ten Boom and her family, they were Christ followers. They were Dutch. And um, they found themselves caught in the midst of this tension of the German and the Nazis and, and, the, and the Jews in the Holocaust. And she and her family, as Christ followers, they worked to hide Jews from the Nazis. And she and her family got caught. And they were put in a concentration camp. And while she survived the concentration, concentration camp to tell her story, the rest of her family was killed, killed directly by the Nazis. And after the war ended, uh, she recounts that there was a number of times where uh, she came face to face with the very Nazi soldiers that killed her family in the camps. And that placed her in this ridiculously hard spot, a place of hardship and courage that, that I can't imagine that you and I probably will never face, Lord willing. And she wrote this in, in her book uh, called The Hiding Place. She wrote this about those moments. She said, even as the, the angry, vengeful thoughts boiled through me, I saw the sin of them. Jesus Christ had died for this man. Was I going to ask for more? Lord Jesus, I prayed, forgive me and help me to forgive him. Jesus, I cannot forgive him. Give me your forgiveness. And so I discovered that it's not our forgiveness any more than our goodness that the world's, that the world's healing hinges, on, but on his. When he tells us to love our enemies, he gives us along with the command, the love itself. See, what Corey Tembum is saying here is that when she would come face to face with those people, how could, she, how could she not but see the sin, the injustice of those soldiers killing her family members? Of course she saw it and she felt it and it brought anger. It brought righteous anger, but she acknowledges it even brought vengeful anger. But what she's saying here is I also had to see them as humans. I had to see them as people that Jesus Christ himself died for. And so how could I ask for anything more from them? That, that they're human and they sin, just as she acknowledged in that moment, she was human and she was sinful. So she had to invite the Lord to give her the strength to remember the gospel for herself, to receive the forgiveness herself, so that she could then extend forgiveness to these people who had caused injustice towards her and her family. That the world's healing doesn't hinge on her strength, she said, but on the Lord's strength at work in her own life so that she then could act as an advocate for righteousness and justice in the world. Missy, I, I believe, again, I've said this, that the way that God has called us together, our, our makeup, uh, the diversity that we have, uh, it, it allows us to, to be in a unique position to have to work some of this stuff out together and also to, to work it out in, in the in the in the eyes of the world. And I think one of the things that we've said from the beginning is that to, to really actually engage in the work of justice and reconciliation, yes, it's about engaging out in the world, but first and foremost, it's about my own personal holiness and transformation. That we have to be willing to look at ourselves, look at the injustice, look at the, the biases, look at the things going on inside of me and invite the Lord in his love, his forgiveness to come and bear on me so that then I can carry it out. If not, we'll become just like the world and we'll, we'll play into, we'll participate into the delete culture 
because we'll see people and we might, we'll forget the issue and we'll focus on the person. And then if we don't like that person long enough and we play that caricature out, it's really just easy to say, I'm going to, I'm going to delete that. I'm going to be done with that. And we don't even recognize that it's creating in us this, this own self-righteous, arrogant, sinful posture that the Lord too says, I need to deal with that in this process because I have called you to be an advocate. I have called you to be a reconciler. I have entrusted you with the ministry of reconciliation. And the way that you're going to be able to step into that though, is to continue to experience my advocacy for you. My gospel played out church. I want to remind you this morning that Jesus has reconciled us to himself. He's reconciled us to God by bearing in himself, the punishment that was required for our sins, the sacrifices that we could not pay that Jesus stood in the gap. Jesus paid that price for us in a way of humility and in a way of replacing dignity in our lives. And Jesus Christ as our advocate, he honored us with dignity. He loved us in spite of our sin. And now we get the opportunity to extend that same supernatural love, that same supernatural grace to others as we engage in these conversations, as we engage in cleanups, as we engage in protests, as we engage in, in using resources to fight the fight that Jesus is calling us to ask him for the same supernatural strength and grace in order to live as advocates so that we can see the world transformed through his love and his goodness. And I, he's calling it to begin within our hearts and even within our conversations with one another. So church, I want to pray for us this morning and then we'll respond in worship. Uh, Lord, this morning, we thank you for, yeah, your advocacy for us, Jesus. We thank you for your, sacrifice on our behalf that Jesus you loved us so much that you came into the world to bear in your own flesh in your own body the weight and the consequence of of our sin of our unrighteousness of our injustice and you did that because you saw both who we were as those created in the image of God and you saw the sin and you dealt with the sin directly with truth and with grace in order that you could actually restore to us a greater dignity and a greater fullness of humanity that we were called to walk in. And so Lord, I pray that you continue that work in us. God, would you continue uh, to, to restore to us a fuller humanity by breaking down and tearing down and destroying the sin within our hearts and within our minds. Sin and, and things that, that are perpetuated there uh, out of stubbornness and out of pride God, would you bring us to a place of humility, bring us to a place of being at the foot of your cross, bring us to the awareness of the ways that you want to continue to work your healing love and your healing power in our lives. And at the same time, when you do that, God, you call us up, you raise us up, you call us up to something more. You call us then to walk as you walked. You call us to be wounded healers. You call us to be advocates like yourself so that we can go out into the world and we can see people who they are in their humanity. And we can see the sin also, and we can deal graciously and truthfully with the sin in order that people would be restored to a fuller humanity. God, would you let us do that? Would you empower us to do that? Thank you for your forgiveness. Thank you for your encouragement. Thank you for the transformation of your love in us as individuals and also as a community. God, thank you for the the communal implications of the gospel as well, that you save us each individually and radically and what you save us into is a family, into a community, into this beautiful fellowship, God, that we're each entrusted with. And so, God, would you show us how to live out this truth more fully within our own community, that our community would be one that then would go out into the broader world and bring about your justice, your healing, your goodness, God. In the places, God, where we're, we're frail, 
God, call us up and strengthen us. God, in the places that we're fatigued, God, call us up and strengthen us. God, in the places that we're unaware, awaken our hearts, oh God, by your spirit and give us eyes to see the things that you're calling us to as your church. Jesus, we love you. We're so grateful for the dignity that you have given us. Lord, would we go and impart that to others by the power of your spirit. I pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.